Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is May 29th, 2020, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is Crash in the U.S., Crash in the U.S., Crash 2 in the U.S.S.A. And our guest skeptic is Dr. Corey Heinz. He is an emergency physician in Roanoke, Virginia. He is also the CME editor for Academic Emergency Medicine. Welcome back to the SGM, Corey. Thanks, Ken. Always glad to be here. Staying safe during these COVID times, I hope? Yeah, for the most part, I think so. It's hard, you know, not everybody around you socially distances, but, you know, you do what you can. But can you get out on your mountain bike? Because that's the key to Corey's happiness, I think. Pretty sure we can. I've been out fair, a fair amount. It's a little harder now with the kids being out of school and trying to juggle who's taking care of them and when, so I can't get out for my all-day rides as frequently as possible, but... It's fun. It's good. We've been been able to get out. All right. Well, let's jump into this uh, and give us a case. All right, Ken. So you've got a 44-year-old male who presents to your level one trauma center by EMS after a motor vehicle collision. He is hypotensive and tachycardic. You suspect abdominal and pelvic trauma and calculate his injury severity score, ISS, to be 22. Your hospital protocol is to give TXA, tranexamic acid, one gram IV over 10 minutes, followed by a one gram infusion over eight hours. You wonder what his overall chance of dying or developing a thromboembolic event is when treated with TXA. Well, TXA is a synthetic derivative of lysine that controls bleeding by inhibiting fibrinolysis and thus stabilizing clots that are formed. We have covered TXA a number of times on the SGEM as a potential treatment modality. The evidence for TXA providing a patient-oriented outcome or a poo has been mixed. It seems to work well for epistaxis. It failed to demonstrate a decrease in all-cause mortality in postpartum hemorrhage, that was the woman's trial, and it did not result in an improved neurologic outcome in hemorrhagic strokes. Rebel EM has looked at TXA for those conditions, plus a few others. We'll include a table in the show notes. It's unclear if it provides a benefit for gastrointestinal bleeding, Nebulized TXA shows promise for both post-tonsillectomy bleeding and hemoptysis. However, better studies are needed to confirm these observations. Dr. Anand Swaminathan, otherwise known as EM Swami on Twitter, and I covered the classic CRASH-2 trial back on SGM number 80. This study, published back in 2010, showed an absolute mortality reduction of 1.5% in adult trauma patients that gives you a number needed to treat to prevent one death of 67. Crash 3, on the other hand, was a well-designed, large, multi-centered, randomized, placebo-controlled trial published in October 2019 in The Lancet. It asked if TXA had a mortality benefit in patients with isolated head trauma. We discussed this on SGM number 270. While there was a suggestion of benefit in the secondary subgroup analysis, the primary outcome demonstrated no statistical difference in head injury-related mortality with TXA compared to placebo. Well, one of the major limitations of both CRASH-2 and CRASH-3 was the external validity. The majority of sites involved were in middle- to low-income countries. CRASH-3 had one Canadian site, and the U.S., oh, it was a nice round number zero participating centers. Transfusion practices and identification of adverse events may be different in developing countries compared to the U.S. and Canada. 
All right, Corey, what's the clinical question we're going to try to answer on today's SGEM? What is the mortality and rate of thrombolic events in adult trauma patients receiving TXA in an American Level 1 trauma center? And what's the reference? Aramuspe et al., Mortality and Complication Rates in Adult Trauma Patients Receiving Tranexamic Acid, a single-center experience in the post-Crash-2 era, published in Academic Emergency Medicine, May 2020. May, and we're recording this May 29th. That means it's hot off the press. Let's run through the PICO. What was the population? Adults 18 years or older who received TXA after an acute traumatic injury. And they excluded patients who received oral TXA, received it for elective surgery or non-traumatic indications, received TXA eight hours or longer after the injury, and patients with cardiac arrest at time of ED arrival. What was the intervention? TXA given one gram IV over 10 minutes and maintenance infusion of one gram IV over eight hours. And there was no comparison, but let's talk about the outcomes. What was the primary outcome? Primary outcome was in-hospital mortality. Oh, that's pretty objective. It's not like the Princess Bride where you can be mostly dead. And then they had a secondary outcome? This was thrombolic events within 28 days. All right. I did mention this is an SGEM <laughs> out off the press episode. And we're pleased to have both the lead author and the senior author on the show. Now, Dr. Joachim Aramos Pei is a medical doctor who finished his medical school in Uruguay, moved to the U.S. for further training and research, and is now working as a researcher at Queensland University of Technology while obtaining his master's in science. Welcome to the SGM, Joachim. Thank you very much. Now, you're in Queensland, Australia. You do not have an Australian accent. And you ended up studying in California. Put this all together for me. Uh, well, this is part of my long journey uh, to become an emergency physician. Back in home, we don't have emergency medicine as a program. Um, we, we, we have the training in emergency medicine, of course, but it's done mainly uh, provide my mainly through internal medicine docs who specialize in, in emergency but uh, we don't have a program. So in order to go for the program, uh, I had to raise my, my background, you know, in, improve my English, go to USA, do research with these guys. And now I'm doing my master here in Australia. And after this, hopefully I, I will be applying for a program in, in emergency medicine. But I, I have practiced two years in, in emergency medicine back at home as a junior medical doctor. That's basically why, why I have been trying to put all the pieces together in order to, to improve my background and, um, and become a resident, hopefully soon. Well, Joaquim, I have to tell you, your English is so much better than my Spanish. But I actually <laughs> learned Spanish as a very young boy living in Uruguay. No way. Way. Unbelievable. Yes, unbelievable. Foam is bringing the world together. My dad did a research project as an obstetrician gynecologist in Uruguay, and our family moved down there. And I think this would probably be early 1970s, like really early 1970s. And due to a little civil unrest, 
we had to leave Uruguay fairly abruptly, I think before he finished his research project. But I learned Spanish, and when I came back to Canada, I had, I had a lot of trouble actually speaking English because speaking English and French and Spanish, and it was all mixed up. But I've lost my Spanish, and your English is much better than my Spanish. Well, thank you very much. Uh, it, it is surprising to find someone who went to, to Uruguay, actually, because it, it's a country that is under the ra radar for many people. And you might know because you, you went there, but uh, it's a lovely country, one of the safest in South America. We might die for boredom <laughs> rather than for <laughs> penetrating injury. <laughs> so it's a very nice thing. My first memory... And here I'm, I'm sharing so much. You've, you, you've brought me into your confidence, Joaquim. My very first memory of my, like my, my birthday party, the first birthday party I ever remember was in Uruguay. And I still remember the cake my mom made and the icing. I still have that really imprinted on my mind. My first birthday that I remember was from Uruguay. So all I have is fond memories of Uruguay. So it's wonderful to have you. Nice, nice. Thank you very much. <laughs> Well, I think there's a couple of other doctors on this podcast, so why don't we turn it over to Corey and Daniel? <laughs> so, Joaquim, your research supervisor is Dr. Daniel Nishijima. He is an emergency physician at UC Davis. His research focuses on trauma and neurologic emergencies, particularly those with coagulation disorders. Welcome to the SGM, Daniel. Great. Glad to be here. I've been a big fan of this program. So, who had the original study? You or Joaquim? Well, it was an idea to generate some preliminary data for a trial that we're planning. So one of the questions that we had was, you know, what's, we know what the mortality rates and the thrombotic rates were um, in the CRASH-2 trial, but we didn't know if those same rates would hold true in the U.S. So this is actually one of two studies we did to generate preliminary data for a, a clinical trial that we are planning. Excellent. Thank you. Well, Joaquim, I'm going to go back to you and give you the opportunity to shine with your English once again. Could you give your actual conclusions that are listed in the abstract from your study on TXA? Sure. Well, our adult trauma patients receiving TXA had similar indices of death, but higher indices of thromboembolic event compared to the CRASH-2 trial. Variation in patient characteristics, injury severity, TXA dosing, and surgery and transfusion rates could explain these uh, absurd differences. Further research is necessary to provide additional insight into the incidence uh, risk uh, of thromboembolic event in TXA use. Thank you, Joaquim. Now you and Daniel get to sit back while Corey and I run through the quality checklist for observational studies. We'll briefly mention the key results and then my favorite time, time to talk nerdy. So Corey, let's bang off these observational quality checklist questions and get to that nerdy section as soon as possible. All right, first question. Did the study address a clearly focused issue? Yes, it did. Did the authors use an appropriate method to answer their question? Yes, they did. Did they recruit the cohort in an acceptable way? Yes. Was the exposure, and in this case it would be TXA, accurately measured to minimize bias? Yes, it was. And was the outcome, and of course in this case the primary outcome was in-hospital mortality, was it accurately measured to minimize bias? Yes, it was. Have the authors identified all important confounding factors? For the most part, it seems so. Was the follow-up of subjects complete enough? Yes. How precise are the results? 
Fairly precise, Ken. Do you believe them? Yes. Do you think the results can be applied to your local population? Unsure. And the last question, the 11th question, do the results of this study fit with other available evidence? Yes, they do. All right, let's run through those key results. This was a retrospective study that included 273 patients. The mean age was about 44 years, and three-quarters were male. What was the key result? What was the all-cause mortality in thrombotic events? Ken, all-cause mortality was 12.8%, and thromboembolic events were 6.6%. Now, they compared their current study outcomes and demographics to those in CRASH-2. I've pulled out some of the key ones, and I will provide those in the show notes. But let's get to talk nerdy. We have five questions to ask Joachim and Daniel to better understand their study. So I'm going to lead off with the first question. You guys ready? Yes. Yep. All right, here we go. The first one is about chart reviews. You reference Kaji et al. Looking through the retrospectoscope, reducing bias in emergency medicine chart review studies. And that was published in Annals of Emergency Medicine back in 2014. What additional benefit does this publication add to the quality checklist for observational studies published by my EBM mentor, Dr. Andrew Worster? To begin with uh, the research, we had to assure the quality of the data that it was going to be extracted. Dr. Nishishima suggested to, to read this paper, in, which includes uh, good practices when it comes to abstract data. We follow some, uh, some of the tips and, and we put it together into our, our internal protocol, which involved um, everything. It was clearly focused how, how to extract the data from the very beginning. And this paper, Kashi, it has a, a bunch of uh, suggestions that we, we mainly follow through all of them uh, in this protocol that we establish. Well, thank you for that explanation. And I think this is great because doing these podcasts allow me to find out newer information. And I think that if you go back and look at observational studies in emergency medicine, it can identify when you trained. Because there was a paper by Gilbert and Lowenstein that I remember first hearing about, talking about improving the methods for observational studies, chart reviews in this case. And just because you do a chart review doesn't mean you can't have really high quality methods. And so that was the first paper. And then, of course, Dr. Andrew Worster, who started BEAM, came along after in 2005 and updated that quality checklist to include a few more items. And now I've got to read this other article on the retrospectoscope and reducing bias in emergency medicine chart reviews. And it adds a little nuance, a little bit more refinement to that Worcester article from 15 years ago. So thank you very much. I enjoyed reading that. And Ken, I'd just like to add, this is a great paper to have for those, uh, those out there that are mentoring junior investigators. It's really sort of a how-to guide for how to do high-quality retrospective chart review. Exactly, and I've been referring back to the Worcester paper at all, and now I'll be able to add this when I'm uh, mentoring uh, researchers who want to do high-quality chart reviews. Again, just because chart reviews are a lower form of evidence on this artificial hierarchy pyramid of evidence-based medicine, doesn't mean you should do it poorly. You should do the best job possible. And these quality checklists help you 
do a high-quality study. And by the way, guys, you did a high-quality study. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. All right, so let's talk briefly about external validity. This study was conducted at a single level one trauma center. How do you think it would compare to the other level one trauma centers in the U.S.? That, that, that is an interesting question because um, if you look at the level one trauma centers in the U.S., they manage all the same type of severity. Instead of severity, all the patients we could say are kind of randomized because in, in California, you see a, every single patient, you know, uh, in terms of severity. And, and being a level one trauma center is a good starting point for, for, for a study like we did. In terms of demographic, California especially has a large variety of patients. According to the latest USA census, uh, California has all the ethnic groups that you can find in the rest of the USA. So I think we, we, we got a very, very nice sample of patients. Yeah, I'd just like to add, I mean, it is, a, you know, it's done at a single center, which, you know, the results of which may not be generalizable to other uh, trauma centers in the U.S. Um, I do think that the other trauma centers in the U.S. are probably more similar to uh, UC Davis compared to the sites that were included into the CRASH-2 trial. Um, I also want to sort of, uh, give the plug for, um, we also published a systematic review asking a similar question. We looked at other other studies that looked at sort of this post-crash-2 use of TXA in a trauma population. And we also found in that study, um, there were nine studies that included uh, over 1,600 patients. The thrombosis rate was also higher um, on that systematic review is 5.9% compared to, again, 2% in the CRASH-2 trial. So, you know, we do have another study that found similar results uh, compared to what we found here. Excellent. Thank you, guys. Yeah. I think one of the questions about, you know, applicability to other level one trauma centers, and I think Ken might address this a little bit as well, is some trauma centers see a much higher percentage of, of penetrating versus blunt. For instance, I think you guys had about 30 to 40 percent penetrating, which is much higher than, for instance, the level one trauma center that I worked at in Roanoke. And so that would be one question as to how does the incidence or percentage of penetrating trauma affect that? I agree. I think um, CRASH didn't look at a subgroup analysis in terms of penetrating versus blunt. I mean, theoretically, you know, as an antifibrinolytic agent blocking plasma generation, it should work similarly for both mechanisms. But uh, I haven't, I'm not aware of any subgroup analyses uh, looking at the two. Joaquim, I need to break up these two Americans and talk about, you know, trauma outside the U.S. And trauma centers in Canada, the volumes we see, even at our big trauma centers, are nowhere near the large U.S. trauma centers. And this is because of the lack of penetrating trauma. I've worked full-time for 25 years in an emergency department, and I've never seen a gunshot injury. Never. Not once in 25 years. Most of the trauma we see are from blunt force injuries. So I was wondering if this has external validity to a Canadian trauma center. As you said, the, the trauma is it varies from country to country. The population as well, maybe you don't have that many patients with uh, prothrombotic uh, risk factors. Like, uh, you know, uh, probably you don't have so much overweight and also not, not so many penetrating injuries that lead to more invasive procedures involving more and more uh, 
transfusions uh, and more bedtime. So all those factors, of course, will be lead to more increase of, of, of thrombosis in, in, at the end of the day. To be honest, uh, I, I think uh, the, this study has to be interpreted in, in, within the limitations. And it's a good reference, it's a good starting point in the USA contest, because as, as you mentioned, uh, everybody knows, crash to try didn't involve uh, USA centers. These results have to be interpreted within the contest. It's a USA trauma center where the population ha may have different ethnic background and different severity in the, in the injuries. Also, we have uh, different protocols for uh, detecting early thrombosis. So those things have to be taken into consideration. Probably this center is closer to any other one in California and, uh, and maybe in the US, but I wouldn't be so sure to, to say yes to Canada. Well, not to gush too much, Joaquin, because I am supposed to be the skeptic, but I loved your answer because it does all depend. And the, the information, the data is what the data is. It needs to be interpreted and then applied. And so that was a fantastic answer. Thank you. So what about non-level one trauma centers in the U.S.? Well, the, the non-level one trauma centers, they, they get all the patients that, that they don't require the most in, uh, aggressive procedures. So meaning less surgeries, meaning less transfusions. So all those factors decrease the, the, the incidence of thrombosis. Probably if we run this, this same retrospective study in those centers, we might find that the thrombosis rate is not so high. And also the practices for, for detection might vary as well. For non-level one trauma centers, I, that should be another discussion. I think it, it could be higher or lower, I don't know, but it, it's, it's another population, it's another sample. I have one last question under external validity. And I mentioned this back in the background information about one of the limitations of CRASH 2 and 3 was that the majority of the centers were in low to middle income countries. But I actually thought CRASH 2 and CRASH 3 did have external validity to where I work in a rural center or what would be considered a critical access hospital in the United States. We don't have a CT scanner or a surgeon and our massive transfusion protocol, it means we're giving both units of O negative. So we usually give TXA to our trauma patients, but we transfer them out quickly to our local trauma centers. And so one of the questions I had with reading your study was, did you include or exclude patients transferred to your hospital who had TXA provided in the periphery prior to arrival? So if patients received it pre-hospital, they would likely not have received the second dose uh, in the emergency department. So we used our... Um, electronic health records to identify patients that received an IV dose of TXA. So although, you know, pre-hospital use of TXA was not a specific exclusion factor, it was very, very unlikely that uh, these patients would have gotten a second dose of TXA in the emergency department. So I'm pretty confident that, you know, again, patients that uh, received it pre-hospital uh, would not be included in this study because they would not have been identified by receiving a second dose of TXA here. Thanks for clarifying that because I thought, yes, they could be included, but 
while they could be included, your search for those patients was through your EHR, EMR, to find out who got that first gram in your department. And so the chances of them getting a second dose in your department after already receiving it either in the periphery or pre-hospital would be, you know, low to zero. Correct. Well, I think we've covered external validity thoroughly, so it's time to move on to question number three. So question number three, lack of control. There was no control group in this study, but you did compare your results to the CRASH-2 study. Let's go through some of the differences and comment on how that may have impacted your results or explain your findings. So first one being demographic differences. Your patients were older and there were, mess and there were less men in your cohort. That's correct. There was definitely more, um, we had an older population and less in our cohort. And this is consistent with other prior trauma studies uh, conducted in the U.S. How about mortality differences and bleeding mortality differences? You had less all-cause and less bleeding-cause mortality in your study compared to CRASH-2. That's correct. But unfortunately, we could not compare injury severity scores between our cohort and the CRASH-2 cohort. The CRASH-2 cohort did not uh, report injury severity scores. So that would be a good way that we could compare apples to apples in terms of looking at the two, the two populations. So it's hard, to, it's hard to make a judgment in terms of the severity of these injuries. Yes, you would need the ISS from each cohort to be able to say and adjust them accordingly to compare mortality differences for all-cause mortality and for bleeding mortality. So that may explain some of the, the next question is you had differences in surgeries and blood products transfused. You had more patients taken to the OR for surgery and more transfusions of blood products. That is correct. It's hard to say if this, uh, you know, the increased um, rate of surgery and blood products transfused is because we had a sicker patient population or because we had more uh, resources available um, at our center. And again, we you know, we don't have the injury severity scores to compare uh, the two cohorts. So it's impossible to really differentiate between the two. Sure. Yeah. And we definitely have in some ways in the U.S., we may be more aggressive in terms of surgical and availability of surgical services as well as transfusion. And the final point on question number three was about thromboembolism. And this was very concerning, actually. Previous studies have reassured us that the risk of thromboembolism with TXA is low. However, in your study, you had more than three times the events as in CRASH-2. It was 6.6% versus 2%. Is this because you had better methods to detect adverse events using your EMR, or is it some other reason or a combination? It's probably a combination of varying reasons. You know, we, we probably had more resources to diagnose thrombosis, such as MRI for suspected stroke or high-sensitivity troponin to detect MI, CT angio and ultrasound for PE and DVT. Our cohort was also older, and again, as you mentioned earlier, uh, received surgery mo more, uh, both are which are risk factors for thrombosis. I do think that it's important to know, though, as, as you mentioned earlier, that there's no control group in this in the study, right? We did, we're not looking at the efficacy and safety of TXA compared to placebo. And so um, I think it's really important for listeners to remember that we're, you know, the higher thrombosis rate we found in our single setter study doesn't mean that 
TXA is is harmful. It's just that there's probably a higher rate of thrombosis in a U.S. trauma population compared to that what was seen in the CRASH-2 cohort, which was very low compared to other trauma studies conducted in the U.S. Well, that's a nice segue, actually, into point number four, because you sort of did have a comparison group. There were there were 31 patients out of 321, and I can do that math in my head. That's like 10%. You had 10% of the patients who didn't receive TXA. Do you have any more information on why they didn't get the TXA and how they did clinically? That's a great question, Ken. So we didn't look formally at these patients, but anecdotally, uh, these were patients typically that had TXA ordered, but for some reason didn't receive it. I know there were several cases where these patients seemed like they were stabilized, um, and perhaps the clinicians thought that they did not need TXA, um, or perhaps they were found to be outside of the time window. But we, again, we it's difficult to sort of ascertain uh, via chart review. So uh, this was not something that we we looked at specifically. Well, it would have been really good to have a little bit more information about a potential comparison group, but I understand the limitations of a chart review. Okay, so question number five, and this is a tough one. Next steps. What are the unanswered questions you have about TXA use in adult trauma patients? Uh, Thanks for that question. We're actually in the process of submitting a proposal for a trial evaluating TXA in injured children. Um, I know the question was regarding adults, um, but I think that's a big unanswered question. You know, there's lots of data on TXA use for trauma in in injured adults, but it is a big question um, in terms of um, uh, does TXA work the same in kids? Um, So that's something that we are very interested in in studying and we're preparing for a a trial. Um, Another question is whether or not there's heterogeneity of treatment effects with TXA. So do certain patients benefit from TXA compared to others, particularly along the lines of varying levels of fibrinolysis, right? So there are some data that suggests patients exist in three different phenotypes of of fibrinolysis, where you have fibrinolytic shutdown, you have uh, physiological levels of fibrinolysis, and you have hyperfibrinolysis. So the question is, does TXA work better in what, you know, perhaps one of these groups, perhaps the hyperfibrinolytic group? And is there potential harm in the, the uh, fibrinolytic shutdown group, right, where these patients are perhaps more prone to clotting and multi-organ failure? Mm. So I think that's a question that's been asked, and there is some data on there, but unfortunately there's no randomized clinical trials looking at that specific question. Excellent. Those are all great questions. And so when you do get that study in children published, I hope you'll consider submitting it to academic emergency medicine so you can go through this SGEM hot off the press process once again. Perfect. We'll see you in uh, five years from now. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Time to comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions. Can we generally agree with the author's conclusions? We're very agreeable. Okay. How about an SGEM bottom line? The evidence supports the use of TXA in the treatment of adult patients with blunt trauma, but the increased risk of thromboembolism is concerning. And how about a case resolution? The patient is intubated, his pelvis is placed in the binder, and you start your hospital's massive transfusion protocol. I guess we're at a level one, not a 
rural, so we're giving more than just our only two units of O negative. Both units. Both units. Oh, both. we're going massive. We're we're all in. A fast exam is positive, and the surgeons start debating whether to get more advanced imaging or take the patient directly to the operating room for an exploratory laparotomy. You step out of the room and make a mental note to look up the patient tomorrow on your next shift. So, Corey, how are you going to take this information, this single center, level one trauma center in the U.S., and apply it clinically? So TXA has an absolute mortality benefit of 1.5% from the CRASH-2 study. This new retrospective study will not change my practice specifically, but it does increase my concern a little bit for thromboembolic events. And what are you going to tell the patient at the bedside? Well, prior to them being intubated, I was going to tell them, it looks like you have internal bleeding. We're going to give you blood products as well as a medicine called TXA. This can help stop the bleeding and improve your chance of survival. There's a low risk of increasing blood clots. The surgeons will talk to you more about taking you to the operating room. It's time for the Keener Contest, and last week's winner was Kirby Black. He is an emergency physician from Oneida in New York. He knew that Hippocrates was the first physician to describe a stroke over 2,400 years ago. Corey, what's the question this week? How many people died in motor vehicle collisions in the USA in 2018? Oh, a good crash question. If you know the answer, then send an email to the SGEM at the SGEM at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive a cool skeptical prize. But now it's your turn, SGEMers. What do you think about this use of TXA in the post-crash-2 era? If you have questions for either Joachim or Daniel, post them to the blog. The best social media feedback will be published in Academic Emergency Medicine. Also, don't forget that those of you who are subscribers to Academic Emergency Medicine can head over to the AEM homepage to get CME credit for this podcast and article. We will put the process on the SGEM blog. Thanks again, Corey, for doing another SGEM hop, but I am still looking forward to when COVID times are over and you and I can go out for a mountain bike ride. When can we travel again, Ken? And I'd like to thank our guests, Joaquim and Daniel, for coming on and doing this SGEM Hot Off the Press episode. Thank you very much Great, thanks for, for having us. us. Now, one of the things that we do at the end of the SGEM is to remind the SGEMers to be skeptical. So I'm wondering, Joaquim, you're the lead author. Could you please read the SGEM tagline? Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you hear it on the Skeptic Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next time.